1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: By and large, there's this theory that if you hit Israel hard, then it will compromise. I think almost without exception, it's the reverse. You hit. Hit Israel very hard, it hardens, and it fights back. And when Israelis get convinced that this is a fight for their life and the life of their children, and they see babies in cages, they will fight. Like part of the idea of the state is that finally there will be one place where they can defend themselves. The fact that they failed so miserably to defend themselves in their own will just cause them to double down on that, not anything else.
3: I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for October 11th, 2023. This past Saturday, the terrorist group Hamas launched an unprecedented raid from the Gaza Strip into southern Israel that left more than a thousand people brutally murdered, most of them Israeli civilians, many of them women, children, and the elderly. Dozens more were taken as hostages back into Gaza. Shocked Israel has in turn responded with missile attacks into Gaza that have killed more than 800 Palestinians and is planning a broader offensive there. And as people search for more information on what's transpired, there are concerns that events may yet spiral out into a broader regional war. One that, among other consequences, might derail efforts at normalization in the Israeli-Saudi relationship that have been a major focus of the United States in recent weeks. To discuss these tragic events and their potentially seismic consequences, I sat down with a panel of leading experts, including Natan Sachs, a colleague of mine at the Brookings Institution and director of our Center for Middle East Policy, Dan Byman from the Center for Strategic International Studies, who is also Lawfare's foreign policy editor, Gaith Alomari of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and Lawfare's own editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes. We discuss the ripple effects the attack is having throughout the region, the role that Iran and other actors may have played, and what it may yet mean for the region and the broader world. It's the Lawfare podcast for October 11th, Hamas's attack on Israel and what comes next. Let me go ahead and start with Uniton, if that's okay. You know, this event is obviously a traumatic one. It's obviously a major event, um, but it's one uh, in a situation a conflict that's been ongoing between israel and hamas um, for many years and, and i think an initial instinct for some people who casually observe the region is that this fits into this broader pattern of violence but i think for a lot of israelis in particular as well as for many other people around the region this is a distinctly different event tell us how it's being perceived with significance what role how it fits into this pattern of past conduct and what makes it different
2: thanks for having me um were the very, first, very early days. So some of the reaction can be emotional and, and maybe hyperbolic, but I don't think it's hyperbole. Israelis believe that the country changed irrevocably on the morning of Saturday. It was a historic trauma. Uh, in sheer numbers, this is the bloodiest day in Israel's history by far, nothing even close. Um, it was the first time since 1948 that Israeli towns or villages were occupied by any foreign force. It was, in fact, the, the bloodiest Jewish day after since the Holocaust. But these were images, even from the very beginning, of a breakdown of the, the fundamental uh, belief in the state's ability to to safeguard civilians at the level at the, the fundamental level. But since then, the days since then, the images coming out are so horrific and barbaric that this really is a trauma, a sort of a national but also personal trauma. For the vast majority of Israelis, the images of babies in captivity, uh, you know, taken, kidnapped, um, elderly, murdered. And there's many other things I don't even want to repeat, but the images coming out just now and the reports coming out just now as journalists and others are entering the scenes themselves are, are just unspeakable. They're ISIS like. And this is very different. So first, the magnitude is completely different. Second, the failure of the Israeli defenses is completely different from the past. And third, the ostentatious, barbaric nature of a lot of this is different. Hamas has a long history of terrible suicide bombings that Israelis know very well intimately, but nothing like this, nothing of this kind of barbarism. All that makes it into a a, really a very different uh, moment. And I think, I and others have used sort of the comparison to 9-11, and that can be overstretched. I don't mean to belabor the analogy. There are big differences, but there are also similarities, certainly in terms of the scope. If you compare it per capita to Israel, this actually far exceeds 9-11. Uh, we're talking now of upwards of 900 dead in the first day, um, and, and that's, of course, in a country much, much smaller than the United States. And that means, from po- policy perspective, I don't mean this just to inflame emotions. The emotions are extremely high and the blood is boiling. But what that means in terms of policy is that there's a completely different demand on the government for action than there was before. Some of that fueled even by vengeance, which is no no guide for good policy, but is a very real guide in real life. Uh, But also a sense that all these previous rounds that you were mentioning, it's just intolerable anymore. And so there is a very strong call to go in and topple Hamas, knowing that the price that Israel would pay, and of course, that Gaza would pay, uh, will be tremendous. Uh, but if you say again, going back to this analogy, if I told you on nine ten that the United States would invade Afghanistan or any other country in Central Asia, you would um, South Central Asia, you would uh, think I'm crazy. By nine twelve, it seemed an inevitability, and. So again, not to belabor it, I'm 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 quite certain Israel will go in in huge force in the Gaza strip. I don't know if they'll have to try to topple Hamas, they may decide not to. The captives of course are a huge complicating factor as is Hezbollah. But Israel is in a very different very different place. 10 million people haven't slept since Saturday and when they do they prefer to wake up. So I really I would caution against thinking this is the old playbook. It's not. Even if now we'll go back to the regular playbook abroad, Israelis are in a very different place and they're not going back.
3: Dan, let me turn to you on this issue that that Natan raised of the intelligence failure. I think two words we're hearing used time and time again in regards to this event. You wrote a really useful piece for Lawfare that went up, I think, earlier this morning, kind of thinking through what it means to be an intelligence failure, what this might look like. Tell us from your perspective. I mean, how should we thinking or looking at this as an intelligence failure? What sort of intelligence failure are we talking about, and how does might that inform the Israeli response? Or how do we expect from their past interactions with Gaza and other similar sort of hostile actors like Hamas? Might we expect the Israelis to respond beyond what we're seeing already, which is a pretty substantial range of attacks, missile attacks on Gaza? Where is that offensive going to go in the days to come?
1: So let me begin with the caveat there. There's a lot we don't know. And obviously that applies in particular to intelligence, which tends to be more secretive. And a lot of the questions to me are yet to be answered rather than out there to see. But Natan mentioned this as an Israeli 9-11. Um, I have a, an Israeli friend who described it as a mix of 9-11 plus the Tet Offensive. So it was an incredibly horrible day that was shattering for many Israelis. But it was also a sense of an adversary that, and I want to put myself in this category too, that many observers thought would not be capable of such a massive event, that Hamas simply didn't have the ability to send so many fighters into Israel at once and have them be undetected to do such a a large set of rockets um, and missiles on Israel, that Israeli intelligence would have caught this. And we can think of intelligence failures with a lot of variations. Uh, One of of the most basic is simply a collection issue. I would have told you four days ago that Israeli intelligence had excellent collection on Hamas and on Gaza. And that they had a mix of, I obviously don't know particulars, but a mix of fantastic signals intelligence with some human intelligence and imagery that obviously could not stop everything but could prevent um, large-scale attacks uh, from happening without Israel uh, detecting them, that Israel would be on top of things. That collection seems to have been missing. Uh, There may also have been uh, failures with regard to assessment in terms of, did Israel just assume that Hamas was satisfied with the status quo, or at least accepted it, and therefore Israel didn't have to worry about a major escalation? There are questions about the assessments of the effectiveness of Israeli government policies. Um, Israel, I would say one of its consistent mistakes has been it's assumed that if it's um, making economic concessions to Palestinians that they will be satisfied with this and often be reluctant to press for political rights, which has, in my view, never been an accurate description of how the Palestinians have approached this. And then a big one is simply the policymaker response. Um, The Netanyahu government, like every government, is facing lots of different problems at once. And for Netanyahu, as Netanyahu has written so well, many of these problems are with regard to the Israeli domestic political scene. But uh, many people have been watching the West Bank for possibilities. Hezbollah, of course, is a constant threat. So were political leaders focused on other issues? And did that change the prioritization? Um, The last possible intelligence failure issue I want to mention briefly is the possibility that Hamas made an intelligence failure in terms of its assessment of the Israeli response. Uh, This may be a case of catastrophic success for Hamas, where they did an operation that I and others didn't think they were capable of doing. Incredibly bloody, as has pointed out, killed a lot of people, took prisoners, which Hamas wants to do. But as has said, this has fundamentally changed the Israeli body politic and the likely government response. And Gaza, at least, is gonna pay an exceptionally heavy price And there is a question to me, which is, will Hamas end up weaker? Will its political standing end up weaker at the end of all this? And to me, that's a distinct possibility.
3: Dan, do you have a sense, do you have thoughts about where we think this military campaign that's underway is likely to go, or is it simply too soon to tell? Um, You know, There's talk about reoccupying Gaza, which of course, Israeli troops left in 2005, at least maybe as a short-term basis for dislodging Hamas, or perhaps for other purpose of a longer basis. There's a range of other military options on the table. We're seeing a blockade being put already that's being described as cutting off electricity and food and water in addition to uh, arms and other sorts of uh, more uh, conventional military equipment. Do, you, do we know what direction this might go in? Are there any hints from past Israeli strategy on this? Or um, is this a new enough phenomenon with a new enough set of objectives that it's hard to know exactly where this where it's going to go beyond what they're telling us thus far?
1: So clearly we're seeing massive airstrikes and a what's going to be a devastating blockade happening already. So that's beyond. The scale of Israel's mobilization to me, indicates that a significant ground operation is highly likely. And in the past, Israel has penetrated a few kilometers into Gaza, and that's actually been quite risky and costly for Israel. And they have to worry that there will be additional military casualties, that there may be soldiers who are surprised and taken hostage by, say, Hamas fighters appearing out of a tunnel unexpectedly. But this is not a case of a retaliation for a few rocket attacks with you know, a dozen Israeli casualties. And I really want to stress that the scale of this is so different that I don't think the past is a very helpful guide. And I think Israelis are willing to suffer more casualties, even though obviously this is a country that really values the lives of its own soldiers. And I think they're willing to take considerable risk to go into um, Gaza and really punish Hamas. And that could mean arresting or killing Hamas leaders, destroying as much of the rocket and missile infrastructure as possible. And to do that effectively, it's going to require some ground presence. So the real questions to me are how deep and how long. And I don't know the answers to that, but I think the anger is so immense in Israel that it's going to be a very strong response and much more so than we've seen in the past.
3: Right, let me let me come to you next, because, of course, there's another side of this conflict that we, ha- we haven't gotten to touch on enough yet. And Of course, there's the Palestinian side. Uh, the military response we have seen incur a kind of growing number of fatalities uh, in Gaza. I think we hit over 800, as reported by Gaza's public health ministry. Um, 4,000 injured, 8,000 fatalities as of a few hours ago. Uh, the last time I checked, um, which is a, a staggering number of casualties for for any amount, um, and likely to climb in the days to come. Tell us about how this conflict, uh, the initial act by Hamas in particular. And then the response to it is being perceived by Palestinians generally, I suppose, uh, on one hand, but also by the different actors in the Palestinian political sphere. Um, of course, we have Hamas being very much a rival of the Palestinian Authority in control of the West Bank with some common interests, some conflicting interests. How are they reacting? How is this being perceived? And, and where do you see what, what momentum is this putting on Palestinian politics? What impact is it likely to have uh, in the time to come?
4: Uh, thank you, Scott. Uh, I mean, look, before I answer you, I mean, just, just may, if I may zoom out uh, for a minute. Look, over the last few days, I've seen a lot on social media, on uh, traditional media, people trying to justify what's going on. I explain it. There's no justification for what Hamas did. This is an act of terror, pure and simple. Nothing, nothing justifies the kinds of brutality that we have been uh, seeing coming out. In the last uh, few days so to be very clear uh, none of this ob- obviously absolves israel of the need to uh, protect civilian uh, civilians during the conflict etc we have to be have moral clarity when it comes on Hamas's uh, actions look why did hamas do this i mean actually before i get to this how did the palestinian public uh, uh, receive it it's very hard to tell you know one of the problems these days is uh on social media, the only voices you hear are the uh, most extreme voices. Yet, from my experience in in previous uh, Palestinian-Israeli rounds, the initial reaction is euphoria. There's a scene, this is uh, revenge, this is Israel only understands force, etc., etc. There's also selective coverage, and I've seen this on a lot of Arab media, particularly on Al Jazeera. uh, This Qatari-funded media outset that it's full of articles and uh, programs that are talking about how humane the mass soldiers are and covering all of the ugliness. So, But in the initial phases, there is euphoria. But what we have seen in the past, that as the conflict uh, goes on, and here I would agree with both Natar and uh, Dan, that what we're going to see today, just in the same way that the Hamas attack was unprecedented, the Israeli action will be unprecedented. As the casualties increase, they will be questioning. Of course, there is a a question of what can people in Gaza do about Hamas, that's a different uh, question. But I think we've always seen this uh, shift from euphoria to basically despair. If you want to go to the policy side of it, I believe that you know, Hamas had many uh, reasons to uh, uh, initiate this. Some are geostrategic, uh, Saudi, Israel, etc. but some were domestic. And the domestic is primarily they uh, see the Palestinian Authority as a very weak, fragile authority. The Palestinian Authority is the main opponent of Hamas. They see things in the West Bank as very volatile as we have seen in the last months. They see an Israeli government that was trigger-happy and uh, willing to kind of escalate in the uh, West Bank. And they see their opportunity to start things up in flame in the West Bank. And in, uh, by the way, in East Jerusalem and in Israel itself. So far, they have failed. So they they have failed. The Palestinian Authority itself. Understands that this is a threat, yet the Palestinian Authority is too weak to take a strong position. So, the Palestinian Authority publicly <laughs> supporting Hamas on the ground, Palestinian security forces are trying to prevent terror, they're trying to prevent friction. Will they succeed? We don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Friday is a big test. Usually, Friday is when uh, Masses come out of the mosque after the Friday prayer, and this is where the. So we don't know, but so far Hamas has failed to ignite the situation. One last, maybe two last uh, footnotes. One is, Hamas will also try to conduct terror attacks from within the West Bank. Uh, Again, will they succeed? We don't know, but we know that they are trying. And I think interesting, they have tried to create internal Israeli friction, as we saw a few years ago between Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis. And here I have to give tremendous credit to. uh, uh, the Israeli Arab politician, Mansour Abbas, who came out very clearly from the beginning, say that they are against this. But Hamas is trying to inflame as many fronts as they can.
3: Well, that actually leads well to my next question, which I'll direct here towards you, Ben, because um, I think you wrote a really useful guide to thinking how to think and how to respond to this incident for, not for Lawfare, actually, but for uh, Dog Shirt Daily, your, your um, uh, sub-stack which you are living living uh, accurately to for the moment. Uh, it, but I thought it was really useful. And a lot of it going through was about saying ways not to frame and talk about this attack, which is very much a reaction to how these incidents, I think, often get played and are perceived perhaps in good faith, sometimes not in good faith, sometimes instrumentally and used by different political audiences, particularly in the United States and other parts of the world. Tell us a little bit about how you see this event kind of beginning to play in those political spheres. And we can start with the U.S. domestic sphere um, just because it's the one perhaps most familiar to us and a lot of our listeners. How is this attack playing in and how do you expect it to play in? And and what are the right parts and the wrong parts about that? What are possibly some of the positive and negative consequences about about what may come and how we talk about this in the days to come?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that I thought was uh, really upsetting about a very upsetting incident. Uh, and of course, it's uh, much less upsetting than the, uh, than the horrific attack itself. Um, but it is what we were exposed to right away was this series of reactions from different corners of the world, uh, the political world, the, the Jewish world, for those of us who were Jewish, uh, the left world and the domestic political right uh, in the United States, which uh, I actually thought was pretty wall-to-wall horrifying. And, and you know, I think some of it you can forgive as, you know, conditioned kind of trauma response. People are very emotional. And so I kind of made a point of not naming names in, in the piece. But uh, look, I, I do think... You know, any time I, I think I identified seven ways not to respond, and you know, they ranged from you know talking about how the other side, uh, whichever other side you're talking about, only understands force. Some of that, some of the themes that Gaith mentioned earlier, to you know, from the from the political left, the. Um, the immediate urge to contextualize uh, or to say, I denounce this but, right? And then the gravamen of the sentence follows the but. And then I, I, I have to say the part that offended me most was the domestic political right, which lost not even seconds in scoring political points against the president for unholy unrelated matters. And so Rana Ronny, Romney McDaniels, and for politicians, I actually will name names um, who, you know, got on television on Sunday morning as this was happening, um, still happening, and talked about what a wonderful opportunity it was for Republicans. Uh, and, I, and so I, I, I guess I think that there's a, a, a Grotesqueness about some of the political reaction, and different corners of the world will be offended more, I suppose, by different parts of the reaction. But I, I, I thought it was amazing how, in the midst of a of this, you know, just just unbelievably horrible violence, which was going to then precipitate as everybody else has said, and I won't really reiterate, the Israeli response is going to be awful, and a lot of people in Gaza are gonna die. And social media was full of the glibbest and most most sort of worst point scoring. And so I, I, I guess that's what was what was behind the piece, just a sense that, hey, something really, really horrible has happened here. Can we have a little bit of respect for the people who are being murdered and the people who are going to die in the response to that? Just can we cool it for a minute?
3: So I want to think a little bit about what this all means kind of moving forward, because we've we've got a moment of reaction. I think we all know there's a lot we don't know, but we're beginning to get signs about the positions that policymakers are taking, that different states are taking, and sense about directions this might go in, although I think there's still a lot unknown, as Dan and Natan and and others folks have noted, and some of the ramifications of this, if if it's a little bit speculative. Natan, I'll start with you uh, on this, just to circle back to the Israeli side. This is obviously a major moment of national crisis I think you, we would expect to see, I think we have seen in these early days, um, what, I don't know if there's American idiom or not, but in, in the United States, we would say rallying around the flag, a sense of national unity and purpose. Um, and certainly Israel has a very strong national identity that uh, it's not surprising to see people rally around. But there are big accountability questions here as well, um, which we've already seen hints at from Folks, political figures in Israel, questions about particularly the intelligence failure element of it. Um, and some brother questions, I think primarily in the left, but I even made the Haretz uh, op ed page, as I saw, I think in, over the weekend or yesterday, uh, making the point that part of this policy tying it to the incred- very aggressive stance that we see in the Netanyahu government, uh, really the Netanyahu governments, but particularly the most recent coalition government, take on a uh, refusal to recognize Palestinian rights or make concessions to Palestinians on various fronts, and tying in. This incident, to some extent, without excusing the actual acts being pursued, but to to some extent to a broader policy nexus and broader policy debates that have seized Israel really for the last several years and are still in the background, a very contentious set of issues, just not at the fore right now how does this intersect with those broader debates, the Supreme Court debate, the reform debate, the West Bank settlement debate? Um, Do we have a sense about how this is going to play with those one way or the other publicly or among the elites that are making the clearest decisions here? We know Netanyahu has made a call for a coalition government um, with the, the last folks who ran the last government prior to his with no conditions that hasn't been taken up yet. Is that an indicator that there might be less... People on the same page than it might appear at first glance. Uh, when we get to the medium, long-term policy solutions,
2: um, it's a great question. Um, I'll try to parse it out. There is definitely a rallying around flag effect. There's no question about it, um, especially from civil society and citizens. There was a very strong sense that the government, the state, even was a bit a wall, and even the military was a wall, which is surprising. The military is both very popular in Israel, but also very able, and it was not this time. And so the the obvious failure of intelligence, but also preparedness. Even, even assuming Israel was surprised, the Hamas fighters, over a thousand apparently, uh, met almost met very little resistance. I shouldn't say no resistance. There was real heroism, but they should have met far many more troops. Uh, there is some argument that the troops were partly repositioned to the West Bank because of uh, this is, a holiday. This was another Jewish holiday on Saturday. And um, and there were settler, rather extreme settlers were were conducting provocations in Palestinian towns. Um, there's a lot there to unpack. I don't know the real answer there. And there will be a huge reckoning as well sort of well versed in this. This will be in 1973 uh, repeat. Everyone knows that the military will not come out unscathed. We've already heard one or two senior officers say that. But there's also, I think, a very widespread sense in Israel that all that is extremely important, but no one's, it's not now. Right now there's a war. These are the commanders of the military. They're very able. They obviously failed here, but they're very able. And uh, and Israel is going to a war very united, especially civil society, as I said. When the state was absent, you see a huge amount of volunteering the ones that have performed absolutely miserably are the current coalition. Uh, they went AWOL. They were on Twitter and in every studio uh, in the last 10 months um, spewing hatred against the opposition. And now they simply were nowhere to be found. I think the chance for a, a national unity government is a big word for it. It would be bringing in at least Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot. So Benny Gantz is the primary leader of the opposition in the polls, at least, although not the official leader of the opposition. And Gadi Eisenkot is a senior member of, of Gantz's party. They are both former chiefs of staff of the IDF, so top top generals, um, and therefore very experienced. And the idea, at least on the table, is that they would join with Netanyahu and the Minister of Defense, Yoav Galant, who's another general, former general, in a small war cabinet that would get authority from the broader security cabinet. And by doing so, would circumvent especially the two very far-right extremists, Itamal Bingvier and Bitsarar Smotrich, especially the former, who who is just obviously unfit for the job, on top to being a heinous human being. That, I think, is quite likely. There's a clear call for it. There's a clear demand for it. I think Netanyahu also feels it would, it would allow him to conduct the war in a different way, in both directions, would give him cover if he does not act as hard as the public wants, but also give him cover if he does. I think that is going to happen. I don't know if Yair Lapid will join. He's been demanding that Ben gvir and Smotrich be removed from the cabinet. But I think at least Gantz and Eisenkot, I think it's very likely that they join. And I think from the Israeli public perspective, that would be very welcome. There are many people who are calling for Netanyahu to resign. There, of course, were people calling for him to resign before this happened. I wrote a piece years ago now uh, saying that the political end of Netanyahu was nigh. After that, I got. I would never say that again. So I'm not saying that, but other people might say that he's a Golda Meir. was the prime minister in 1973. She actually won the election at the end of the war. The elections were postponed because of the war. She won the election, but she had to resign very shortly after. There seems to be something just untenable about the leadership that that let this happen. Continuing, I could be wrong. He's a political magician. But again, all that, there are exceptions. There are people saying that already now, but mostly everyone was saying all this, the knives will be out, but they're not out right now. Right now, we all need to fight together. And you asked, you asked about the broader issue. Um, so on two issues, on the demonstrations against Netanyahu, they're on pause and against part of what I was saying, and the, the same protest movements mobilized to bring food to the South to, to help to do a variety of different things. Um, But they've they've postponed that. And there's an understanding that, of course, the judicial reform and all that is on pause as well. The, The government, the country is dealing with exactly one thing right now, a very complex thing, which is the war. On the Palestinian issue, that's hard to say. I think in the long term, this may cause some kind of reckoning. I think this idea that the West Bank settlers were a hindrance here for Israel's preparedness, that may carry some weight. But by and large, the big thrust of this is not going to be, oh, you know, we really should have been more leaning into the Palestinians or how did we neglect this? This it will have some of the worst effects on people's psyches. They will see truly ISIS-like behaviors. I don't want to spell too much out. but what we've seen the past day is the headings and not of adults, let's just say that. I mean, just ISIS, the worst kind of ISIS-like behavior. This does not cause any empathy among anyone, I should say. And even if rational people would say, therefore we should seek political arrangements, what this will cause first and foremost is the demand to go after them, kill every last one of them, of the Hamas people. And then unfortunately, I, absolutely tragically, this will incur a huge cost on the Gazans who live around the Hamas people and the Hamas people are hiding among them. That's where it's gonna go right now. Where it goes in the future, you know, history can you know, have pendulums, we'll see, and, and maybe this will cause something in the future. But by and large, there's this theory that if you hit Israel hard, then it will compromise. I think almost without exception, it's the reverse. You hit hit Israel very hard, it hardens, and it fights back. And when Israelis get convinced that this is a fight for their life and the life of their children, and they see babies in cages, they will fight. But part of the idea of the state is that finally there'll be one place where they can defend themselves. The fact that they failed so miserably to defend themselves in their own will just cause them to double down on that, not anything else
0: and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code
3: LAWFARE20. I, I want to come to you on a similar question uh, regarding the Palestinians. We're on a trajectory. We have a moment where the PA at least has walked a careful line, as you noted, um, one that may not be uh, capture entirely popular views, but I think it's a politically significant one, as you noted. And that, I suspect, gives a lot of uh, more license and leeway to uh, other Arab leaders and states who take a vested interest in the Palestinian interests, Jordanians certainly, Saudis who for whom the Palestinian issue is part of a much broader discussion, which we'll get to in a little bit about um, their relationship with Israel and the United States and other parties involved. But w- how sustainable is that? Is that outcome um, if we, as we see the offensive? Progress. You know, we are also already seeing pretty horrendous uh, civilian costs in Gaza, um, and particularly if a blockade extends for an extended period with cutoff of supplies, food, medicine, it, it could get much worse. Where do we have a sense of where the tipping point is? How accessible that will be, and what's on the other side of it? It doesn't seem likely that you know the PA or, frankly, many Arab governments in the region are going to rally around Hamas by any sense of the, to the imagination. But how they how do they reconcile? I think opposition to what Hamas has actually done with opposition to how the Israelis are responding? And what will that mean for broader regional relations for Israel, for Jordan, for the Palestinians?
4: You know, just to make it even more complicated than what you have just described, this is all happening in a context of intra-Arab rivalries and intra-Arab tensions. So, uh, you know, uh, look, today the Arab world is really split, I would say, between uh, three, maybe three and a half approaches. You know, you have some of the traditional approaches. Beyond Egypt, these are countries that have an actual national security interest in the development of these issues. These are countries bordering Gaza, bordering the West Bank, who really want to just uh, calm things down because they are afraid of the spillover. Uh, you have countries which are egging on Hamas. You know, again, uh, you should look at the Qatari statement. You see that blame basically Israel for everything. Um, you have very interesting. We saw two uh, different Arab approaches, UAE and Bahrain, partners in the uh, Abraham Accords, who came out fingering, specifically Hamas saying, you're responsible. And then you have Saudi Arabia, who uh, aspires to lead the Arab world, and as you noted, is already in the mix of a complex negotiation with the US and uh, Israel, which is playing hardball. Um, And I think these elements will fight among one another. We do know that for all of these actors, the uh, interest the, they understand the more that we see images of that Palestinians, the more that the human suffering in Gaza increases, the more that their political internal political uh, oppositions will play it out. You know, I mentioned about next uh, Friday in the West Bank. I'm very closely watching next Friday in Amman for them, because uh, I've seen calls from the opposition, from the Muslim Brotherhood, etc., to go on massive demonstrations, which inevitably turn against uh, the. Uh, governments. And I think so this is where there is a dissonance. I think everything that I mentioned so far fits the old table. As I think was noted, we are going into uncharted territory. But I think some of these Arab countries will have to make very, very difficult uh, choices. I think they will have to deal with a situation where is going to be much more uh, extended than in the future. And by the way, this is where the U.S. comes in. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this uh, later in terms of how do we engage with our our Arab allies who help them navigate this, but also to pressure them to take a responsible position. For the PA, I believe that ultimately it will all hinge on whether or not things on the ground uh, deteriorate. But this hinges on two things. Hinges first, first and foremost on, will we see disturbances in Jerusalem? will be things that see happening in the Aqsa Mosque, uh, Haram Sharif, uh, the Temple Mount, that usually are a rallying cry. And whether or not we see the Palestinians in the West Bank themselves being massively impacted, whether through Israeli military action or through settler violence, which is another element that has been uh, building things up. All I have to say on this one is that the Palestinian Authority is so weak today that its options are very, very limited. So I am very worried as I look at How these countries, whether it is the Palestinian Authority or Arab countries can deal with that, I see no good options for them. And the longer it goes on, the more uh, cornered, let's say, the more rational actors will be, and the more emboldened, the more inflammatory actors will be.
3: And while we're on this topic, let let's just touch on on this question of the expansion of the Abraham Accord as well, which was the big regional issue going into this horrific event, and which many people have tied the links between Hamas's action to an effort to disrupt. Uh, although I think lots of people have made the case now that. Uh, this actually underscores, particularly insofar as this was an act motivated or facilitated by Iran, underscores the common interests of Saudi Arabia and Israel in the region. Do you have a sense about how this is likely to, or how do you think this is likely to impact the perception of that arrangement uh, and its political salience moving forward, Um, particularly, I suppose, from, I guess, it would be the Saudi perspective primarily at this point, although potentially other uh, states that are in the mix, including existing accord partners?
4: First of all, we are We are at the early stages. I mean, I've been tracking the evolution of Arab diplomatic positions since Saturday. The first statements were kind of off the shelf uh, statements. We saw the evolution. What I've seen so far with the Saudis, and this could change, is that they are actually using this opportunity to burnish their pro-Palestinian credentials. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, uh, called, I think, Sisi, King Abdullah of Jordan, and uh, others. And in the Saudi readouts, it was always, he emphasized the rights of the Palestinians, protection of the Palestinians, etc. So they are using this to burnish this, and in some ways, to kind of indirectly respond to all of those who were saying, oh, you were going to sell the Palestinians down the river. My own assessment that once violence ends, once the war is over, the fundamental interest that drove uh, Saudi Arabia, who engage with Israel, whether vis-a-vis Israel itself or whether vis-a-vis the United States, will not have changed. Uh, what we're seeing will be, from a Saudi perspective, a blip a blip that they might use to burnish their credentials. But ultimately, I don't see anything that will come out of this that will fundamentally alter the equation from a Saudi read. At least. So
3: there's one other big state in the regional calculus we've just barely touched on. But Dan, I want to come to you on that. And that's the Iran question. You wrote, a really interesting and useful piece in, I believe it was foreign policy, I could be wrong, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was in foreign policy about uh, Hezbollah's role in all this. We've seen uh, some very limited exchange of hostilities with Hezbollah in Northern Israel from Southern Lebanon, presumably Hezbollah, I should say, but from Southern Lebanon to, with Northern Israel in the last few days, but n- nothing concentrated, um, some signaling that it might be related to an effort to deter a Is- more significant Israeli campaign into Gaza. Hezbollah obviously has a close relationship, I think in many ways, by most measures, closer to with Iran than Hamas does, but they both have relationships. And a lot of people are asking this question of what was Iran's role in this Hamas operation. Tell us how you're viewing this issue right now. How should we be thinking about this question, which I think most would agree there's no clear answer on yet? And how does Iran seem to be responding to this incident insofar as, well, regardless of whether it was or wasn't directly involved in helping to plan it, how is it entering into Iran's strategic calculus in terms of its reaction in the region?
1: So let's start with what we do know. Iran has uh, provided a wide range of weapons to Hamas and the Palestinians. Iran has provided money to Hamas, and Iran has trained uh, Palestinian fighters. So certainly Iran, in my view, bears some responsibility for this in the sense of, Part of Iran's goal was to make Hamas far more formidable, which it has done. So I would say from a kind of tactical point of view, this has been an Iranian success. I've seen reports, the Wall Street Journal had a story saying that there was a meeting in Lebanon, that Iran gave the go-ahead for this. I've seen other reports saying there's no evidence of a significant Iranian role. So I'll just echo your point that I think it's a bit too soon, at least for people on the outside to make a definitive judgment about how much Iran was involved. And that can range from, as I said, simply building up Hamas capacity to the other extreme, which is really being the mastermind behind this particular operation. This operation serves Iranian goals in several ways. One is, Iran has been concerned about Israel's normalization with Arab states, and Saudi Arabia, of course, is the big prize in all this. And for now, at least, this normalization, I believe, is disrupted. It's very hard for Saudi Arabia, to move towards peace, towards Israel, when the Palestinian issue is on the front page, especially with large numbers of Palestinians dying, even if this is Hamas's responsibility. It's simply too difficult politically for this to happen. Um, So disrupting that works. And also Iran is genuinely committed to opposing Israel. It sees Israel as an illegitimate state. Part of Iran's revolutionary legitimacy was in its anti-Israel struggle. And it also sees Israel as a hostile actor. Israel has done operations against Iranian scientists, has targeted Iranian military personnel in Syria. So Iran is seeking some way to strike back. So this has several advantages from Iran's point of view. And in general, this is how Iran prefers to conduct its foreign policy in the region, which is through proxies. Whether it's Iraq or Yemen um, or Lebanon, Iran works with local groups. And in Lebanon, that's its most important and most longstanding relationship, which is with the Lebanese Hezbollah. And they did a brief attack in what they called solidarity with Hamas. And this was an attack on the Sheba Farms area. And I'm happy, if there's interest, to kind of go through how this is kind of a fake dispute in some ways. But nevertheless, it's one that Hezbollah has been emphasizing for years now. And in my view, what Hezbollah was doing was trying to signal to Israelis Yes, we're hostile to you, but this is business as usual. We're not trying to escalate this. And I think Israel's response, which was also limited, um, actually fit that mode, that uh, both sides do not want to escalate this right now. Hezbollah would pay a very heavy price for this, and many of its constituents are not eager for a confrontation. Uh, The United States is also focused on preventing this sort of escalation. Uh, Part of the reason that the Biden administration deployed a carrier battle group to the Eastern Mediterranean was to prevent regional actors, and that would be Iran, that would be Hezbollah, from escalating. So the U.S. is trying to message, and I'm not sure how much that affects Iran and Hezbollah, but certainly bringing the U.S. into this against them is not something they want.
3: So, Ben, I want to come to you with another and arguably maybe the last major actor uh, that we are keeping an eye on in terms of where this goes next, uh, and that's the United States uh, and perhaps some allies as well. Um, We saw a major statement of support come forward from the Biden administration with several European states, UK, France, Germany. uh, That was notable in the last few days we've seen motion towards strong support for the Israelis' uh, efforts to fast-track assistance to them, perhaps as part of a package with Ukrainian assistance that's been held up in Congress, uh, and generally a a kind of very strong stick-by-Israel sentiment, certainly in any sort of public representation, I suspect, in most private discussions as well at this point. How sustainable is that in the medium to long term, though, as this conflict proceeds? Um, We know the Biden administration has been in an effort to decline us major involvement in the middle east uh, i don't think they're uh, pretending that's entirely possible um, but they don't want to make it a major front a major war although with american hostages on the game I, w- I for one i would just know it would not roll out an actual direct us military particip- participation at some point but uh that setting that aside there's obviously not a ton of appetite or at least going into this week and there wasn't a ton of appetite for a major us military involvement in the region and we're already seeing elements of the Israeli offensive that I suspect are going to make Americans uncomfortable, uh, Israeli response, um, particularly statements by the Minister of Defense about the scope of blockade, cutting off humanitarian assistance, blocking the southern crossing point with Egypt, uh, you know, uh, limiting supplies through there. Short term might be something people are willing to tolerate. In the long term, that becomes a law of conflict concern and an ethical concern more generally. That's going to be a point of friction for... Probably Europeans and others have, tend to have more restrictive visions of those, uh, certainly legal constraints earlier, and then for the Americans eventually. So how is the Biden administration going to balance this? How do we feed this into where we're going to look at the American position on this four weeks from now, four months from now, as opposed to just in these early days?
0: Yeah. So putting aside the uh, law of armed conflict questions for a moment, I think the... Israelis go into this with a lot of running room from the United States and atypically for them with a lot of running room from Europe, uh, which is usually uh, more edgy about Israeli military action than the United States is. Um, Candidly, Hamas has made this pretty easy. And, um, you know, the, the, the concept of a state has very little meaning if you don't respond, if you can't respond or are constrained uh, from responding in defense of a thousand people in your country. And so I think the tolerance, for, the, the tolerance for aggressive military action by the Israelis is gonna be quite high. The question in my mind is for how long and how aggressive right so you can the aggressive the israelis won't be you know for all their talk uh, and you know you Galant just uh announced that gaza would never be the same right there's got a lot of sort of you know very belligerent talk but the israelis are not you know they're not gonna do a Grozny or an aleppo or uh you know a mariupol here And so the the question is, part of the question is, what is their strategic objective? And we don't really understand the answer to that question yet. And how coherently can they communicate what their strategic objective is to American policymakers in a fashion that makes their behavior uh, appear approximately related to something that is reasonable? I think as long as they can do that, Uh, They will have a lot of lead from the United States. And frankly, I don't think you're going to see European governments get too upset about it either. Here's the problem. Uh, Actually defining a reasonable strategic objective that you can achieve without civilian death on a scale that is actually morally unacceptable is extremely difficult. And so you can do the first week and a half looks very much like the same irrespective, right? You're hitting targets with Hamas leadership and weapons systems. You're killing or capturing people there. Yes, there's civilian casualties, but you don't seem to be targeting civilians. You seem to be targeting uh, uh, legitimate military targets. And then you've done all you can do in that regard. And what do you do then, right? Do you go house to house and street to street, street by street? Do you try to free hostages, which will involve getting a lot of people killed? And I don't think anybody today, and certainly uh, Gallant in his statements, which have not been wildly responsible, uh, has not given a lot of sense of what that picture looks like, what they're really trying to achieve and i think the the risk for the israelis is, is that you is that you go past what the world will accept or what the united states or europe will accept because you can't articulate what you're doing in a fashion that looks like what's happening on the ground and i think that's a problem that they've had in the past honestly and that they need to be very careful about as they pursue this operation
3: And do you want to add something here?
1: Yes. I'll just note briefly, um, there's a principle of proportionality that, Scott, you and Ben and other lawfare experts can talk about in great detail, Uh, but there's also an Israeli broader strategic goal of deterrence. And because Israel is casualty sensitive, that means that if Israel notionally takes 10 casualties and Hamas takes 100, um, in the past, both Hamas and Israel saw that as a Hamas victory. And so for deterrence to work, the ratios had to be wildly skewed, had to be extremely high in the Palestinian end uh, compared to the Israeli end. Given the staggering death toll in Israel, what a deterrence level uh, sort of casualties look like, what to say, okay, Hamas has now felt so much pain, they won't think it's worth it. That's a really difficult question. And so I worry that in Israeli efforts to restore deterrence, that this question of proportionality will go out the window and we'll see a lot of suffering.
3: Yeah, and needless to say that that concept of deterrence is a hard thing to square with exactly that proportionality principle, necessity, humanity, and the things that enter into the law of armed conflict. And there's a recurring problem with kind of different past Israeli military operations that might be here as well that uh, push the envelope and lead to a lot of the disputes between Israeli and international legal experts about where the exact line is for some of these things.
0: And, and let me just add to that, that you know it may actually be impossible to act effectively in Gaza in compliance with the notion of proportionality. And this is uh, for two reasons. One is just related to the population density of Gaza, which is one of the three or four most population dense places in the world. And the second is the way Hamas positions itself within a civilian population. And that, that actually creates, you know, it, it creates a problem that is very, very difficult to uh, work your way around. How do you behave in a fashion that is proportional uh, under those circumstances? And the, uh, and the Israelis have never figured that
3: out. We've only got a few minutes left, but in the last few minutes, uh, you all have been watching this conflict very closely, as many of our listeners will be. What should we be looking for? What is the main thing or one of the main things you're looking for in the next week or two to give us a sense about the trajectory of where things are headed, some of the bigger measures, indicators, whether it's military operations, political reactions that you think are significant that you're on the lookout for? Kaith, let me start with you because I know you have to run quickly. Then I'll go to Dan and Natan and then finish with you, Ben.
4: First of all, I would look at the articulation of Israel's objectives, they have not yet articulated their objectives, uh, so that will be uh, the first one. Certainly, the issue of the casualties, you know, I said it in the beginning, I'll say it again, Hamas's attack is inexcusable under any circumstances, yet what we talked about, proportionality, humanity, etc., are nevertheless uh, obligatory rules of international law. I will be looking at an intra-Arab dynamics. Would the uh, countries that have targeted, that have pointed out Hamas, will they rally uh, dramatic support around them? Would we see Jordan and Egypt and others join that, or will they be uh, isolated? And finally, when we get to the point, when we're talking about de-escalation, who will lead in the region de-escalation? Will it be led by countries sympathetic to Hamas, like Qatar and uh, Turkey, or will it be led by uh, uh, Egypt and uh, with the support of the UAE, et cetera? Because that will ultimately determine if Hamas ends this round with a political win or with a political loss.
3: Dan, what do you be looking for? Uh, so I, I,
1: there are a lot of things I'm going to be focusing on, but let me uh, emphasize one issue for now, which is hostages. There's a huge number of hostages. And this complicates day-to-day military operations. You have to worry that if you do a strike on a building, that you're going to kill your own people. Um, and there's also a broader question of the hostages being used as a threat for deterrence, that if Israel goes in or if Israel starts to really hit Hamas hard, that it starts to execute hostages. Another game changer, which I would add for us to think about, is there are American hostages. Right. In the past, these sorts of issues from a U.S. point of view have been about supporting a very important ally who many Americans feel very strongly about. This is different. There are Americans held hostage by a terrorist group, and their lives are in danger. And this has to, this will complicate the broader US response. And it is going to be a huge issue, especially when names are named. We start to see families talking to media about their loved ones, demanding the Biden administration do something. So this is, to me, something the United States hasn't had to deal with in the past in this sort of conflict, but will have to this time.
3: Natan, how about you?
2: I'd add one point on the hostages. We're going to start seeing them used perhaps very, very soon in psychological warfare. There are reports now of of maybe videos coming out of them begging for their life um, and requests from students in Israel, from parents to students in Israel to remove apps from their phones so that the students can see it i going to see that, and it's going to complicate, as I said before, it's going to complicate the Israeli calculus dramatically. The second point, of course, is the uh, is, is the Hezbollah question. I really can't emphasize this enough. If Hezbollah joins, then it's just a different kind of ball game. I have family in northern Israel, so I'm biased as well, but Hezbollah can, can strike all of Israel, not just the north, and as we said, far more, far more stronger than Hamas. And so therefore, that could really dramatically change things, and I think they're... The, uh, the carrier group in the Eastern Mediterranean can be quite important, and we and President Biden just spoke as well, warning anyone to get involved. So the question there is, what exactly is the red line? What, what would the U.S. do? Would it get involved or not? That's, I think, the second point that will be absolutely crucial. A third is what we see, what will we see in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, maybe inside Israel among uh, Palestinian citizens. So far, we've seen not all that much. We have not seen the West Bank blow up, as we saw in previous cases. And and if that separation remains, then that's one thing. If not, then it could be quite a different thing. It's in some ways not as dramatic as, as Hezbollah. But if inside Israel things flare up, uh, that could be get
0: very ugly very fast, especially with blood already boiling.
3: Ben, I'll bring it to you to close. What, what do you have your eye on?
0: Yeah, so uh, a lot of what I was going to say has been covered. Uh, I want to mention one other thing about hostages, which is that Israel, uh, in a way that Americans often don't understand, really turns itself upside down over hostages. And, uh, you know, one uh, Israeli soldier in the hands of Hamas for five years was a national cause celeb uh, that really made a difference, you know, in people's lives. Uh, in a way that has no analog in the United States. 150 hostages releasing videos is, uh, is very hard to overstate uh, the psychological impact of that and the operational constraint that it might uh, create for Israeli forces. That's uh, thing number one. Thing number two, I, I agree also that a huge amount turns on whether this becomes a multi-front war or not. And there are two really important questions that guide that. The first is whether the stories about uh, Iranian involvement are correct or not, or whether Israel perceives them as correct. Because if Israel concludes that Iran was involved, it will respond against Iran in some way, and that will bring Hezbollah into the war. And as Natan describes, Hezbollah is the most capable fighting force that the Israelis face, and it's a wholly different animal than dealing with Hamas. Uh, The second thing that guides that potentially is whether Iran wants to bring Hezbollah into the war uh, as a way of, of uh, uh, sharpening its own credentials. Uh, and so, you know, if Israel concludes that Hezbollah, uh, that Iran was not involved or not involved in a, in a, in a deep way, uh, it will do everything it can to keep this as a one front conflict, because Gaza is hard enough to deal with it without having a Lebanon war as well. And so, uh, I would I would say the Iranian question uh, and the hostage question are are very, very big ones in my mind right now.
3: Well, on that note, we are unfortunately out of time, but Dan, Hayes, Natan, Ben, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you to, for our audience members who are watching live, uh, for those listening later. Uh, sadly, unfortunately, I think we'll have more opportunities to talk about this in the future here at Lawfare and elsewhere. So until then, thank you all very much. Thank you. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleague Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. This podcast was edited by Janja Patjahal and produced by Lawfare's own Anna Hickey. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim?